0: Welcome to Priority Message Series 1. This podcast is brought to you by the Fire and Rescue Services Association, a trade union within the Fire and Rescue Service that is independent and member-led. You can find out more about FRSA by visiting frsa.org.uk. So welcome to Priority Message the podcast from the Fire and Rescue Services Association. In this episode we will be speaking to Justin Johnson the Chief Fire Officer of Lancashire and Neil Taylor area manager from Lancashire Fire and Rescue. Justin began his career in Essex County Fire and Rescue Services as a firefighter in January 1995 and left in 2008 to join Cumbria as an area manager. He then moved to Lancashire in October 2012 to take up the role of Deputy Chief Fire Officer, having previously served as the Assistant Chief in Cumbria. He was later appointed to the role of Chief Fire Officer of Lancashire on the 1st of May 2019. Justin has been a member of the Institute of Fire Engineers Institute of Leadership and Management and the National Fire Chiefs Council, where he has been the lead for firefighter fitness and the long-term chair of the FireFit Steering Group until taking over the role of vice chair of the NFCC a few years ago. Justin was awarded the Queen's Fire Service Medal in the New Year's Honours List last year. And under Justin's leadership, Lancashire Fire and Rescue Service was named Fire Magazine's Emergency Service of the Year for 2020 2021. And the last HMICE inspection, Lancashire, was deemed good with outstanding features. So, in addition. Justin we've got Neil Taylor who is the area manager of Lancashire and the current FireFit steering group chair. Welcome to Neil and Justin to Priority Message.
1: Thanks Tristan that's a really nice introduction.
0: It's a pleasure and I'm very grateful for you taking the time both of you um, to speak to us with your thoughts primarily about fitness standards uh, but also general questions with regards to the future as you see it with regards to fire so do you just both want to give us a bit of background to how you both got involved with regards to being chair of FireFit steering group?
1: I think um, so always over a decade ago. Somebody has a word with you and saying there's a vacancy coming up. Would you be interested? Yeah. And uh, at the time I was doing the national nuclear lead because it was in Cumbria and Sellafield and that sort of made a lot of sense. But um, firefighter fitness, and more broadly firefighter well-being, has always been an interest of mine. Um, so I took the opportunity. I think Paul Hancock was leading it at the time. Um, and it was just when there was quite a lot of change going on. The change was going on around uh, firefighter pensions, uh, and there was some opportunity to do some research work um, in a really meaningful way that hadn't been done before. Um, that sparked my interest, and so I got involved at that point and became the uh, became the chair of the group as soon as I became ACO in Cumbria. So, uh, a lot very long-standing history with the Five
0: Steering Group. Fantastic. And all about yourself, Neil.
2: Yeah, in terms of myself, uh, like Justin said, he's been he was the chair of the group for a considerable time, and work through some uh, big challenges, really, in terms of occupational fitness standards, in terms of trying to get those key messages out there. But I think also, like Johnson, Justin mentioned, that link between fitness and health and wellbeing, which perhaps hadn't been explored in any great depth previously. So when Justin was coming up to become an vice chair of NFCC, there's an opportunity for myself to... Uh, take over in terms of the five foot steering group chair uh, and similarly I've always had interest in fitness real interests in health and well-being uh, my wife's in uh, what's is a general practitioner so I've, I've kind of got that outside of my own work as well you know I've got those interests outside where I've, I've, I've got those sort of Interests, uh, And I'm also quite keen on sports myself outside of, of work in terms of cycling, enjoy trail running. Uh, don't play so much football now, but really enjoy watching football. Uh, and I think all of that uh, kind of blend all that together. It's, you know, it help, helps you sort of think and critically analyse where we are in terms of, sector and and fitness and and challenges moving forward, I think there there will always be considerable challenges. So, yeah, it's a a great opportunity and, uh, you know, currently I'm really enjoying the role.
0: Fantastic. Um, I sympathise with you about being more of a spectator of um, football now than probably before. Uh, I give up playing football uh, earlier on this year because... The new players were getting younger and I was just getting older and older and older and I thought it's time to give up, but um, very much like taking part in any sport when when I can. It's more a case of badminton now than football. Um, So I don't know about you, but fitness is becoming more and more of a topic of conversation when I go out and speak to firefighters up and down the country, Um, particularly fitness standards um accessibility to fitness equipment etc um i would say that we're, we're all on the same page with regards to wanting a health healthy um, and fit workforce and membership it's just a case of how we get there um i was do- just doing some research in preparation for this uh, conversation and i i went back to 2008 when fitness standards was really being spoken about and vod video- two max was was being discussed and I didn't know what your background was to that when you first um, got a good understanding of the importance of uh, fitness levels and the connection with vo2 max and how it was measured and how it was assessed
1: I probably had a fair history with it and, and a, an understanding of how it generated in the first place I mean the five foot steering group originally wasn't an NFCC group or, or, or even then a CFOA group it was uh, fitness advisors from individual services trying to get together to develop best practice and you know working independently I think to draw together what information was out there and to come up with recommendations and that's where the first um, the sort of 42 vo2 standards came from uh, you know really drawing in on on existing literature and then after that some work was done around Uh, Point of entry selection testing and how you um, can come up with a set of tests that are applicable to people that don't have fire service experience that um, will tell you whether they've got um, a reasonable or a good chance of being able to come through successfully through recruit training but never really told you what standard you should have once you were in the service. and and what sort of minimum standards you should be maintaining. So the the piece of work that was um, part-funded by the Fire Research and Training Trust and done in association with the University of Bath was to to ask that question, what is an appropriate standard for a firefighter to maintain to be able to do their job um, successfully and to look after themselves and and, also not to put others at risk? Um, And one of the first things they would have done, or one of the first things they did do, was draw in a lot of data that was already out there and try and um, understand what the research piece had been in. But sometimes that research is done in other countries and they've got different ways of operating, they've got different PPE, So there's lots of things you need to take into account uh, that forms your baseline. At the same time, um, another question was being raised... Um, And that was in relation to changes that were were being proposed from the government in terms of the Firefighters Pension Scheme, um, which was about the normal age uh, that a pension would be um, accessed. And Dr Tony Williams, who was um, working in our sector as a provider of occupational health services to a number of fire services, uh, was commissioned to do a review of the normal pension age. Um, And I think one of the things that he said that was really interesting in there is when you look at all of the data and and what that means, each individual fire and rescue service is applying it differently. Hmm. Um, There isn't a consistency, but there's a danger in almost asking the question. Because if you ask the question, you've then got to live up with ensuring that you've got the right processes, supports, You know, broader welfare in place to make sure that people have got the best opportunity they can to um, maintain that level of fitness if that's the core base level of fitness. Um, And and to be fair, some of the work that's been done post the implementation of the fitness standards with the University of Bath says that as a result, you know, we have lower levels of sickness. Uh, lower levels of musculoskeletal injuries. We have people that are um, particularly uh, whole time firefighters that are leaving the service at the same level of fitness they'll be required to come into the service, which is great. You know, if you're going off to retire and you're not falling over the finish line, you're, you're jogging over it. Um, so the, the, the broad benefits are really strong. Um, but As with all things fitness and standards, there are always complications and individual circumstances um, that sometimes we don't know how to grapple with as effectively as we could on an individual service level. Um, And so we came up with the best practice guidance. Now, the best practice guidance was, um, say, home office published, um, but was a combination of the... um, Employees and employers' side of the NJC to come up with um, some best practice. But best practice doesn't apply always at an individual level. You know, there are things like reasonable adjustments, trying to work out what's appropriate um, for a given circumstance. Um, I was on a station visit last night, an on-call station, and you, you really need to tailor in those fitness standards with what that group of people need at that particular time. So, yes, you need to reach the fitness standard, um, but is it appropriate to potentially restrict people's roles whilst you're going through changes within a unit to keep it on the run and available, but also make sure that everybody's safe for a risk assessment process. So it's always evolving and always changing.
0: So just, just on that point, because I think it's a valid and very topical point about fitness for role um, something that we've had discussions with certainly with your depth Steve um, with his, wearing his NFCC on-call lead hat was if somebody doesn't meet the le- fit level of fitness currently which is 42.3 um, could they fulfil part of the role so rather than being taken off the run could they fulfil part of the role depending on what their current skill set is so the usual example would be you're a driver And uh, this is obviously predominantly an on-call station. And the appliance would be off the run if that individual was taken off the run because they are a driver that's available most of the time. I just wonder what your thoughts were and whether Lancashire practice it or not um, as to having a varying level of fitness depending on what the ask is from the service for them to perform.
1: I understand entirely the question you're asking, and it is something we are actively going through at the moment. I mean, if you took, um, for example, somebody going for a fitness test, um, failing the fitness test, the next question is why? Um, And let's understand that from an occupational health perspective. So what's the trigger for that? Is it a change in lifestyle? Is it uh, a medical condition? Is it uh, a temporary medical condition? Is it something, um, for example, um, that will be time-bound and that you can overcome? Or is it a process of you know somebody's aging, they're struggling to maintain the level of fitness? Um, What could you do under like an individual assessment in order to ensure that they're they're appropriately restricted in terms of the activities you want to do. I mean, the highest risk activity we do is go inside buildings with, with breathing apparatus on. Um, and one of the reasons I say the higher risk is because you are away from uh, being observed and it's difficult to withdraw somebody. Um, so when somebody's operating outside, although it can require the same level of fitness, the control mechanisms around it are a lot easier. Correct, yeah. Um, And equally, I remember when I joined, uh, you know, some 29 years ago, you would come off breathing apparatus at a certain age, whether you're fit fit enough or not. I don't think we can certainly put it around age now, but we we should be allowing ourselves, particularly, I think, in the on-call environment, to to raise that question and do that individual assessment um, around somebody's needs, but also around that individual unit, the station's needs, um, is somebody willing to stay on for a bit longer, but have their role limited? Um, I'd still be wanting to put them through the fitness tests and then meeting the minimum standards. Um, but the uh, the struggle of perhaps being inside, um, um, you know, a high risk environment, you can take that element away from them, you know. And as you say, Tristan, restricting them perhaps to pump operating and you know driving the vehicle especially
0: if that made the crucial difference yeah i think for us it's a a no-brainer that that would happen but in addition to that what what we've seen is then people very often in those circumstances get taken off the run they're then detached from their crew detached from their station Uh, they don't feel that connection then you've got mental health coming in into that as well and if they're not within that environment they they all of a sudden lack the motivation to maintain and attain the fitness level that that is required in the first place so we see lots and lots of benefits for you know firefighters the individual themselves and the public in terms of still having a service emergency service provision locally
2: Uh, Tristan I think the other thing uh, for consideration is uh, in, the, in that best practice guidance Justin mentioned uh, published in, in 2016 uh, one of the appendices in there gives a, a fitness sort of process map uh, yep. and it's the, the green amber red which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. So I'll,
0: I'll put that on the screen because I'm glad you've spoken about that I should be able to do that
2: Yeah so appendix A uh, it's the green, green amber red so you, obviously a few above Uh 35.6, but not not quite 42.3. Uh, you are in, in the amber if you're all according uh, to that. Now, as it says on there, you know, if, if there's a uh, a car queue pre risk questionnaire in place uh, and the support from that wider group of stakeholders, including occupational health, the line manager, uh, the PTI, etc. The, what, what you do have an opportunity to do there is, is to provide support to the individual uh, and to try and keep them on the run. So a lot of services now have started introducing the, the drilled ground assessment, which, again, did go through rigorous research and uh, it was gas analysis done. There was all, all sorts of sort of testing done around that to ensure that it gave a, a predicted, uh, you know, high level of confidence around that predicted uh, sort of fitness Level, if you will, so that 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 can be done. You know what we found are some individuals, not all, but some individuals are actually better suited to do that. jaw-down assessment than yeah, they are the multi-stage fitness test, for example. So that that's one example there. Uh, I also think you know really do firmly believe we need to be uh, you know it's guidance at the end of the day. You know I, th- I think in, in terms of serving our communities the best and making sure our firefighters are healthy making sure they're safe as well as the communities are safe as they can be we must ensure we continue to promote you know good levels of fitness and those uh, sort of functional uh, le- levels of, of strength and conditioning as, as well but uh, we do need to take into account that like you said there are some challenges and particularly around the on-call, which we know, you know, across the whole country. Uh, So if there's better ways of delivering that, you know, in terms of providing support and introducing some risk-assessed, you know, ways of of reducing the impact on people to keep them on the run in some cases, if that works, then, you know, I I believe that's, that's potentially a way forward that we should be looking to explore. And it's something that we are, Starting to move forwards on in, in Lancashire. Uh, did you that
1: I think the, the challenge is it just needs to be on a very individual level, isn't it? Yeah. So best practice guidance makes a lot of sense. Covers you know, probably 95 percent of your overall workforce, and you know keeps people fit and healthy. Links into that broader health and well being strategy of your organisation. All the things you do to try and look after people and to provide the right level of support, but there will be those occasions where you say, well, actually, we need to look at this at a very individual level, and, um, you know, we're used to doing it in other things, aren't we, injuries, um, maternity, where we'll do that individual assessment. Um, I just think, the, you know, the evolution is to make sure that uh, fitness comes into that bracket as well. It can't be a get-out, it's got to be because of an individual's needs, coupled with a unit's needs as well. So you may need um, somebody to be driving for the next six months for you and they might be willing to do that to help you out um, whilst you're bringing somebody else through development. So um, I think we have to be pragmatic, don't we, in, in making sure that we can deliver the
0: services. Absolutely. I think we're on the same page with regards to that. And just picking up on what Neil was saying, it goes back to culture is a topical um, word at the moment, but it goes back to culture and making sure that um, people understand and are educated in in terms of nutrition, in terms of the importance of keeping fit, the benefits for mental health of keeping fit, uh, the implications of not keeping fit, et cetera, uh, and to ensure that that network of support is there, both not just when when you don't achieve the fitness level but but continuously to ensure that ideally you never fall off the treadmill as as a metaphor um because i think that is so important because very often i don't know what the data is but i can imagine that those that do fall off it's a heck of a lot harder to get back on than it is not falling off in the first place certainly very interesting it's a whole package, isn't it? I mean, health and
1: well-being should be sent together. In fact, when we first started doing the five conferences, you know, they were about fitness. And then we started to evolve and started to talk about um, occupational health. And it became a bit of a blend between the two. But over time, it's become about mental well-being. It's become about a whole range of features that try to look at the whole person. So when, they, uh, when you try to attract them towards the organisation and ultimately to when they leave your organisation, hopefully um, in a good place, you know, from a physical and a mental wellbeing perspective. And the, the more features you can put around that in your health and wellbeing strategy for your organisation, the better chance you've got of getting it right. But so true uh, is it of fitness standards as well. So those services that fitness tests regulate by um, you know six months, every six months, then the chances of somebody dropping off in terms of fitness and dropping off a long way is is really um, really uncommon. Whereas if you only get fitness test, say I, mean, I have heard of services doing it every three years alongside the, alongside the medical, you know, let's be honest, some people will get fit for the fitness test and then ease off. So if you're testing every six months. You, if you're going to drop off, you're not going to drop off far. If you don't drop off far, going around that best practice guidance is really easy. Mm. Um, equally, if you've been left alone for a long period of time, if your lifestyle mirrors the general population and we become less active, more sedentary, if we, you know, put on weight, um, then that task is going to be, a, you know, a damn sight harder. Um, so I think it's about a
0: a constant focus around it yeah the the reference to the best practice document is really good Um, that's now seven years old I think I think that was 2016 Um, so I'm going to throw out a few not challenges but a a few concerns so we can sit here and agree about what should and shouldn't happen etc but there's some things that have started to creep in that are a bit concerning for, for us um, I'm not going to name any brigades, but I found out recently that one particular brigade that's not actually that far from you are uh, now, if you're off for a period of time of sickness, you have to, you have to pass the grill, drill ground assessment and the treadmill. So we've put a challenge out to that because as far as we're concerned, it's one or the other, you know, whether, it, whether it's the bike, treadmill, shuttle run, just the step test, drill ground, they all should be broadly measuring the same thing. So if you pass it, you pass it. I didn't know whether you'd heard about that or what your thoughts are. Maybe, maybe you don't want to comment on it at all. But uh, we, we don't think that's particularly helpful in, in terms of you know, keeping appliances on the run, keeping people motivated um, and retaining firefighters.
1: Uh, I'm happy to comment on it, Tristan, but as you can imagine... I'm going to try and do it in a diplomatic way where I'm not talking about... I expect expect
0: nothing else. And
1: their approach. So I I, I probably have a couple of questions for that service as to what it is that they're trying to achieve from it. So for me, if I want to understand whether somebody's got the right level of VO2, um, that's the thing that protects them and us as an organisation and their colleagues, um, then a surrogate test is absolutely fine. Because you are testing their, their level of VO2, so however you may do that. If I want to understand, say if you've been off for six months, um, particularly if you've been off with injury, I might want to know whether you can achieve the functional elements of doing the job. So, you know, can you do the physical things of putting a ladder back on the appliance, extending a ladder, so on and so forth? Now, if that service is decided, um, that a good way to run that through is to run the five round fitness test. then then I can understand it, but I would be assessing to see the functional elements. I think um, it's it's pretty good practice for anybody returning from a long period off, um, particularly if it's through injury, but for whatever reason, is that you just run through the functional elements. You know, can you put the ladder back on? Can you extend the ladder? The things I expect you to be able to do is your upper body strength there. I'm probably um, going to ask you and provide you some support around that so you can self-assess in the gym environment so you know you're ready. Um, I'm probably not going to go through the effort required, personally, of doing both a surrogate test and a drill ground assessment um, because there's a lot of resource going into that. So I would probably be saying, well, i may aiming to understand where your VO2 is at. And I can do that through any method of surrogate test, and the best one is the one that suits you best. For me, um, and then I'm aiming to understand whether you've got the um, strength requirements and conditioning, because there's a there's an element around conditioning. Um, that's what I'm trying to get out of it. So my question back to that FRS would be: What is it you're trying to achieve from it? Um, if it is simply. You've got to achieve this standard, and then we're going to put you for another test to see if you achieve that standard as well. I, I probably want to have a conversation with them as to whether that was um, delivering on what they really need from it, and whether that was creating um, an undue tension in their in their workforce. But um, without further detail and, and getting into it, I can probably say much more than that. Just
0: no, oh, I, I appreciate the comment. Um, I don't know whether this is. Across your desk as well but going back to neil's conversation um with regards to the amber stage we're now getting services that are taking they're not using the amber stage anymore they're just taking them off the run full stop irrespective of how close they are as to achieving 42.3 so they're in the amber stage the old amber stage but they're saying no we're not going to keep you on we're going to take you off full stop until you hit 42.3 I didn't know whether the, you were aware of that starting to creep in in some services.
2: Uh, in terms of that, Tristan, I'm, I'm aware, I think it was yourself that uh, raised that maybe about two or three months ago, so there, there is a little bit of awareness. I'm not aware of the uh, specific services that are sort of applying that uh, level, if, if you will, in terms of, you know, seems to sort of disregard the amber. Uh, in terms of the five foot steering group, we have got representation on there from I think pretty much region uh, every region from from around certainly England uh, and we've also got Northern Ireland represented on there as well. and we do often have have discussions around how fitness standards are being managed locally. Uh, that's not cropped up in there so like I say i'm not I'm not sure exactly where that's come from, but you know as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Look, like, like we mentioned previously, there, there's there's a real place for that amber level. You know that does give, yeah. uh, I, I suppose, people that little bit of additional support that they may need. It also gives the service an understanding of how many. People are receiving that level of support. You know, we and many of the services often sort of run reports in terms of how many people are in that under standard. You can understand the sort of resourcing that needs to be put in from um, the ongoing sort of PTIs, the maybe additional demands on occupational health, etc. Uh, and it's a very small amount, to be fair. Uh, and, you know, that does seem to be replicated across a lot of services. I think mm. fitness testing seems to be really well embedded across the vast majority of services. Uh, I think the last thing I saw was, you know, 95% plus of services are, are sort of applying the fitness standards. Uh, and likewise, we do feed in in terms of fitness Testing to H1CFRS on the uh, six monthly data return, so that you know there is a degree of uh, feedback loop as well on, on that level. I mean, that doesn't go into all the metrics you perhaps want to see to, to give you a, a real detailed analysis, but it does, does give a level of assurance that you know the, the, uh, the fitness testing is being put in place and there are uh sort of measures being being undertaken so it is something you know we can we can explore moving forwards in terms of trying to get that level of consistency and just trying to understand why services might be just going for the green and red and and the past fail rather than having the uh the opportunity to try and help and support people i think i'll, like, I'll um what sorry would produce best practice guidance
1: yeah. You know, and every, every fire and rescue service is sovereign. You know, they're, they're able to say what they think is appropriate locally, and we provide them tools and information and support and ongoing support as well because um, we, we need to continue to evolve this. So, when we answered the first question for a core firefighter, what's a, you know, almost a safe fitness standard to be able to effectively do the role? Our information's evolved since. So there was a a recent study post Grenfell done in London Fire Brigade uh, utilising University of Bath again, um, Professor James Bilson, And they did a a project that looked at the, um, I suppose it was the, the, the individual cost of going to the top of a high rise, undertaking some activity and then coming down and then doing that on different types of breathing apparatus sets you know, extended duration bereavement apparatus. And one of the interesting um, correlations, because it's a very, very demanding activity where most of us, irrespective of our fitness level, will work at the upper end of our fitness, um, so we're going to be going all out, um, meant that a lot of people came down on the whistle irrespective of that was the extended duration breathing apparatus or not. But those people that were um, under 42 VO2, a good proportion of those went up under their whistle, which is, which is a concern, isn't it, around fitness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're potentially going to go into those environments. Yeah. But the learning from it also told us that actually, instead of just you know progressing up the stairs, working as hard as you can to get to the um, uh, scene of operations, the benefits of pausing uh, flights, recovering some of your, your heart rates, and, and um, uh, then going again, meant you were more effective. So we're learning all the time. And we're also learning all the time in terms of how to make some adjustments for people, how to do a risk assessment around an individual. And that's what Neil and his, and his team are on with at the moment. And that's before we've even began to ask the question, what does it mean from a fitness perspective to be in urban search and rescue or any other specialism within our service that you know, currently we, we don't know, we've only got the core uh, role in it. So there's, there's lots of work for the steering group yet to do, um, but for every solution there are always unintended consequences that we then have to try and manage through well, I think yeah,
0: that's the challenge. I mean, uh, absolutely, and as you said, you know that document is a best practice. But I think so long as somebody can justify, it's the same with any guidance, isn't it? So long as you can justify doing something differently, then that's that's absolutely fine. Um, just at the moment, in, in certain certain issues that are cropping up, we can't find the justification from some brigades. Uh, j- just picking up on what you said, Neil, about the ninety-five percent are applying the standard. Would would you know? My understanding is that London don't apply the standard. I didn't know whether they were in that 5%. Yeah,
2: it's probably not uh, right to comment on specific fire rescue services. Uh, one of the, well, one of the vice chairs of the fire exterior group at the moment, uh, Dr Emily Watkins, is doing a little piece of work on, we've, one of the objectives we've got looking forward is trying to strengthen how we collect data and then once we've we've got that in the bag I think it will open up opportunities in terms of analysis of that data and then uh, potentially sort of looking forward again is uh, what we need to do uh, as a group and then feeding back in through the the people programme and up into the sector around uh, better prevention strategies, feeding across into uh, the sort of mental health and well-being agenda and all that kind of stuff. So that is a big piece of work. And uh, the reason I've just mentioned that is Emily's currently uh, looking at standardization around that data collection as well. So Mm -hmm. that's an ongoing piece of work uh, that we're looking at, not just the data collection, but what metrics are we looking to capture and then what are we going to do with those metrics? So again, there will be... Uh, I'm sure we'll get a, a sort of picture around uh, the country in terms of who's engaging with that process, what we're currently doing, where the gaps are, and you know if, if we can, you know, influence and provide support for anybody that needs it. Absolutely, uh, be getting across that
0: as well. I think I mean, that that's <laughs> that's encouraging to hear because it, there is a void there, I think, in terms of consistency and having that 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 information available. And you say that's going to the NFCC People Programme.
2: Yeah, well, in in terms of the uh, data collection, that is one of the key objectives we've got on as a group. Uh, I think there have been multiple challenges getting us to a strong position there over the years. Uh, I don't think we're in a in a bad position, but it's it, again, it's that you know range of fire rescue services around the country, maybe all doing things slightly differently. Uh, you know, it's it'd be great to have that, uh, that common approach in terms of how the data's collected, what's collected, and then you know potentially feeding into uh, a shared platform or some obviously GDPR compliance and everything else, but to have yeah. access to that will give us a lot of benefits uh, to develop things in the future.
1: Yeah, I think particularly as well, when you look at data from your own service, Sometimes those margins, those that uh, the anomalies, statistically aren't bright enough to tell you enough information. But if you can times that data up over the cup, the whole of the UK, then you you start to see patterns, and then you start to understand whether the interventions that one service is making is having real benefits, or conversely, the other way around The the other thing is, in some places, it's quite legitimate to have a variation. Um, and I'm going to pick out the strength standards. So um, the, one of the, the largest requirements on strength standards is to extend to lower a 135 ladder as an individual. Um, and that sets the strength standard in, you know, unless you change that ladder or how it operates or how you drill, um, then it's there and it's there for everyone. But there's some services that don't have 135 ladders anymore. Mm. Um, so you should look at what the best practice says and the guidance says and then tailor it in for yourself. So if you're only working off a 10.5-metre ladder, then that's going to have a slightly different strength requirement and you shouldn't be asking more of people because ultimately when you get down to that uh, the courts of, court of law environment, they'll say that the test has to be um, reasonable to what you're asked to do in the workplace. Um, So, you will get some variations between services, but you'd hope that um, where we can be consistent, that we are. And Neil's right about the data. So, um, at the moment, people, um, because it's local data, they can record it in different ways, and then it's difficult for us to compare apples with apples. So, um, Emily Watkins um, on the group. trying to standardise
0: some of that data can only help us out going forward. You know, all of this fitness stuff will continue to evolve. Brilliant. Um, I just wanted to move off from fitness standards in a moment and cover some more broad uh, topics. But before I do, and it will come as no surprise that I'm going to ask this question, um, females and fitness. So at the moment, we've got a situation whereby um we want a more, more diverse workforce, um, which will have benefits for the for culture in a number of services. Uh, and having a diverse workforce is, is good, I think, full stop. So we've got the conundrum of wanting a diverse workforce and we've got a fitness standard that is really difficult for particularly females to attain and maintain. And I didn't know what your thoughts were on that, uh, and how we tackle that if if it's if it's possible to tackle.
1: Yeah, I've had so many conversations on this over the times and, and, and you know, been in to see the HMI and sometimes people raise an issue of saying it's particularly difficult for women to attain the fitness standard in the first place. Um, but the fitness standard is there for a reason. It's there because of the determinants of what the job requires. Um, and therefore um, it's blind to gender, which makes sense. Um, and the data actually bears out that VO2 isn't a significant determinant for women applicants to the service or women in the service. Uh, maintaining VO2 um, can be you know, fairly straightforward. Where the challenge can come in, I think, at the recruitment um, and selection point can be around upper body strength and if you haven't done those type of activities or conditioning then you're going to struggle. We find that with slight men as well. So um, I think a lot of that's about the work that you do prior to people coming forward for selection so when you do your have-a-go days, when you put information out, understanding that you can go into the gym and do these activities and build your upper body strength up if it's not there, irrespective of gender, um, and give yourself every good chance to be able to pass the process. And then when you're in the service, that you've got access to good equipment, and good advice and support to maintain that upper body strength. Uh, one of the things we found um, during the studies is that, uh, for example, women who played um, netball or basketball, that were used to doing those over-the-head activities and uh, that sort of physicality lends itself really well um, it's just that we don't often do it and we tend to focus on the VO2 uh, and the VO2 is, is something that's um, is probably much less of a challenge where it does come in for um, men and women but particularly women if we follow the general population as we age is it becomes more difficult And there can be uh, medical things that can come into place as well, such as uh, the menopause, um, osteoporosis. That means that actually you end up needing to train harder and condition yourself more in order to keep the level that you may have more naturally kept prior to it. So I think it's about seeing holistically and and rather than um, saying this is a barrier so therefore we need to change the standard. Um, I think it's more about understanding it properly and make sure that you've got the right support not just at the front end and the the more challenging aging end but throughout someone's career within the fire and rescue service
0: okay brilliant so i'm going to move away from fitness um so in terms of looking forward what what do you think the challenges and opportunities are for the fire sector in let's say the next three years
1: well, from my personal perspective and having been the Vice Chair at the NFCC now for the past couple of years or so, obviously there's a white paper there's Fit for the Future, where the employers and NFCC um, agree that there's lots of opportunity to see how we can evolve as a sector and keep up with things, keep up with what the demand is from local communities, respond to climate change challenges and um, that sort of myriad of things so there's a real opportunity now to do that so the um, reforming our fire and rescue service white paper um, I understand that we're not too far off seeing the outcomes to the consultation on that I'm not going to use the word <laughs>
0: We'll in Wait order. with bated <laughs> breath
1: <laughs> Yes it would probably not, uh, not not too wise to hold your breath on that one but it does give us an opportunity to clearly define what it is that we think we can offer. I mean, I think the pandemic was a really good um, example of that, where you've got, um, you know, a countrywide emergency, you've got a workforce that's used to adapting itself, um, that's capable of putting thousands of boots on the ground within five minutes all over the country in pretty much every community, And how do you best utilise that asset to keep communities safe irrespective of what the challenge is? So I think there's something there in medical responding. I think there's something there in terms of um, almost crisis management for whatever that may be. And I think there is a a growing need to have a more connected response to uh, climate change events. So, you know, prior to flooding during flooding after flooding prior to wildfires during wildfires after wildfires um, and expanding um, our offer in that way and doing it in a, in a much more integrated way with not just partners but with local communities as well
0: so plenty of opportunities and um, I think we're signed up to everything you've just said particularly you know in terms of looking at broadening the role the medical response um do you think that will
1: happen i hope so i really do hope so because these opportunities don't come around very often a lot of work Correct, comes yeah. into it you know we can prove all the data we know the benefits um defibs I mean is a great example all of my fire engines in length Lank Car- carry defibs but we don't get the call because of the way we're currently set up yeah. if you knock on the door of the fire station or we happen to come across it then we'll do it and um, that that seems a little well it seems completely odd to me yeah because, it's frustrating um, there have been some, some stories where you know that um, we could have made a difference and didn't and I think it gets locked up sometimes in national issues understandably um, but um, now's the time to, to grasp that nettle and if that means um, you know the employers working to achieve better um, recognition as part of that then I don't think they should shy away from that either because I think the benefit is so significant that it would outweigh um, you know putting additional cost into it to, to make sure that it happens because we've got a health service that's You know, you know, awash with challenges, but actually, we know that if agencies respond together, um, then we reduce the risk to the local communities significantly, particularly around cardiac arrest, but um, other areas too.
0: Yeah, I think you know the the pressure that we could take off the NHS with with the opportunities and the facilities that we have the void that we can fill there, I think we really need to start making some proper progress. That'll obviously help with recruitment and retention for on-call. I think it would also help in terms of diversity because I think different people will be more attracted to the role. It's just so many benefits and it's just, just so frustrating that, you know, we all pretty much know what we need to be doing and know how to get there. And we just need that extra push.
1: Now's the time, I think. Now's the opportunity. You know, there's a lot of alignment on it. Um, there's a lot of there's a broadening understanding across government. Um if we don't take this opportunity this time round, then um I think that would be a real missed opportunity and, and personally real disappointing.
0: So again, Justin, Neil, thanks ever so much for coming on to Priority Message, and hopefully you'll be back soon. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks, Tristan. If you enjoyed this episode of Priority Message, why not subscribe to the podcast and recommend to your colleagues? We hope you will be joining us again soon.